Millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and sea to the far corners of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. As one small step for man, we're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million planets, eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellent talking, I have it. Not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. I've seen him kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazi. Those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men will fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass, and dictators die. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place. There's a lot of people who like to look down. There is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we, we not realize. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome, everyone, into Garden of Doom. And this week, we're getting back into the world of voodoo. Our guest this week is Sally Ann Glassman. She studied ceremonial magic, voodoo, and yoga most of her life. She was, she's been a practicing voodoo in, she has been practicing voodoo in New Orleans since 1977 and was ordained as a manbo, a voodoo priestess, in November 1995 in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. She is the owner of the Island of Salvation Botanica and founder of La Source Ascension, Ascien, I hope I pronounced it closely, on Fu where she presides over weekly voodoo ceremonies, including one later today. Today is Easter. Happy Easter to everyone who celebrates. Um, she has led her community in numerous public ceremonies. Miss Glassman is an artist who exhibits her paintings and assemblage art pieces at several New Orleans galleries. She illustrated the Enochian Tarot and was co-creator and illustrator of the New Orleans Voodoo Tarot. We really need to talk about the Enochian Tarot. Uh, if, I don't for- if I forget... Please remind me before we go off the air. Because you forget the Anubian tarot. <laughs> my ability to forget things is, is unbridled. But thank you so much for coming to the show. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Thank you for having me. I'm fine. It's actually a chilly day in New Orleans for Easter, so um, I'm happy to be at home on the on the on the phone with you. Terrific. Well, thank you for that, especially on Easter. And I know that you're uh, having a ceremony later on uh, this afternoon. So. You wrote a book called Voodoo Visions, and I want to spell how you spell voodoo because uh, you actually go into some lovely details to why you use the uh, English wording and, and letters the way you did. It's V-O-D-O-U, 
um, visions is visions. Um, but you know, a lot of the book has things spelled differently than one might assume. Uh, and there's a reason for it, but you'll have to read the book if you want to find out what that is. But I actually found that to be really, really interesting. And, uh, I don't know. It just, it just had a stamp of authenticity to it. So I, I think your origin story in and of itself is really, really interesting. We chatted a, a long time ago, like several months ago, and it took a bit to get on the air. But so I, I, the audience obviously doesn't have the benefit of, you know, what you told me. So I would love for you to like sort of tell your origin story. So I'm second generation Ukrainian American Jewish from Maine. And uh, I certainly went on a, a long journey to become a, a Mambo Asagwe, a priestess of Vodou. Um In 76, I believe, I was living in my cousin's unheated barn in Kennebunkport, Maine. And it was 20 degrees, October 1st. And I'm thinking I better figure out someplace to go. And my brother called saying that he had gotten a job teaching at Tulane University in New Orleans. And something in my head just said, voodoo and jazz might be really interesting. So I packed up my sheepdog and my parakeet and flew down to New Orleans. And indeed, voodoo and jazz were very interesting, <laughs> as, is, as is the city. And, and the people who inhabit New Orleans and, and the entire environment is fascinating and beautiful and weird and otherworldly. And I ended up staying. I think my second day in New Orleans, I ran into a guy who called himself Andre the Martinican. I was convinced he was from another planet. Um, he was the, the single most psychic human being I have ever met, and unnervingly so. He could read minds, and I was always thinking something strange about him because he was so unusual. And he had very long, articulated fingers, and the baby finger kind of curved off the sides of his hands, and so I was convinced he was a Martian or somewhere <laughs> from outer space. Right. He, would, he would call me, having never been in my home, and describe the contents of my home to me in the most offhanded, casual way. It was just freaky. I was a bartender at the time, and he would sit at the bar and and start reading people. And instead of protesting that this total stranger had any right to be saying anything to them, let alone talking about their deepest, darkest secrets, and instead people would just defend themselves and say why they were the way he was describing at any rate, he worked at the Voodoo Museum in um, the French Quarter of New Orleans. He made me promise that if I would never work at the museum and never work for the people at the museum, that he would take me under his wing and, and teach me a thing or two. And so I made that promise, and... Um, I never worked there, although for many years afterwards, the Buddha Museum insisted that I got my start working for them. <laughs> I never did work for them. And he taught me a great deal about observing humanity, observing closely and, and picking up on people's vibes. I had been pretty psychic since I was a child. Um, 
and my first memories of thought, of personal thought, are that the world didn't look very solid to me. It looked like a mirror reflection on the surface of, of an ocean of energy and still looks that way to me. But I didn't know that anything was odd about that um, until I was much older and realized that people didn't know what I was talking about half the time. But I noticed as a child that adults were a little taken aback by me and that I knew more about them than they were willing to say. Um, I can remember walking through my parents' party that they were having and my mood was going all over the, the map. And I started to wonder where that mood swing was coming from and realized it was coming from the adults at the party that I was picking up on other people's emotions. And I realized how invasive that was, um, both for me and for them. <laughs> so at that point, I think I was 13 and I started drawing my own first tarot deck um, because I wanted a way to have a switch where I could turn this off and on. And um, by the time I met Andre the Martinican, I had developed those skills pretty pretty well. I mean, I, I was doing tarot readings for people all the time and, and crystal ball readings for people. Um, but he helped me hone those techniques. At, at the point where I was, I think, I think it was 1995 and I had been in New Orleans for some time at that point. And, and um, I met a woman who lived in my neighborhood named Tina Gerard, who was a phenomenal artist and performance artist and, and crazy woman. <laughs> and she was the president of a temple in Haiti that year and invited me to come and witness a ceremony one November. While I was sitting in her kitchen discussing the possibility, the phone rang. And it was a gentleman named um, Edgar Jean-Louis, who was later to become my initiator in Haiti and my papa and my, my mentor and friend, very good friend. And he had spoken with the Loa, the spirits of Voodoo, and they had told him that I should just come down and initiate and not simply attend the ceremony. And not knowing any better, I said, okay, and flew to Haiti and, and met Edgar. Uh, I, can, I can remember driving in my friend's sports car to pick Edgar up on the way to the initiation. And it was a very small little sports car. I was sitting in the back seat. Edgar was close to seven feet tall, very wow. thin. And um, and as I'm sitting there driving through the Bel Air neighborhood, which is one of the the most um, impoverished slums in the Western Hemisphere, I was literally trying to figure out what was building and what was rubble in the street yeah. and this incredibly tall, dark, um, impressive man folded himself down into the seat next to me. And I took one look at him and I knew my life was going to be different and that this person would never be out of my mind ever again. 
and he has never been out of my mind. He changed my life and set me down a, a very different path than the one I was on. And we ultimately, we were very close. He would come to New Orleans and lead ceremonies and teach my group here. And I would bring people there and, and stay in his temple and do ceremonies with him and learn from him. It was, it was a, a true blessing because he was a magnificent old man. He was a wonderful person. Now it, it's, it sounds like it's probably pretty unusual for a second generation Ukrainian Jewish at this point, young woman from Maine to make their way from New Orleans period, then to make their way to Haiti to become an initiate mm-hmm. in, you know, sort of, you know, probably the, where people think the voodoo originated. Now listeners of this show know that voodoo comes from uh, a, a bunch of places, in, but notably West Africa. And then, you know, and then they're sort of combined with uh, the local native American uh, first nations, indigenous populations, and then Catholicism sort of, you know, put a stamp on it. Or I think actually more to the point, voodoo sort of adapted and accepted some of the stamps of Catholicism and, they sort of the opposite of what usually like someone who comes in and conquers, they sort of put their God heads on someone else's God heads. I think voodoo did the, the jujitsu version of sort of saying, we'll call it this, but it's still ours. And then, and I guess whoever was in charge. So influenced Catholicism in, right. in the areas where voodoo flourished, um, yeah. you know, in new Orleans, people have home altars, Catholic people have home altars. Um, there's all kinds of, ways in which the the saints are supplicated in the same way that a loa, but a spirit might be supplicated. They have prayers, St. Anne, St. Anne, bring me a man. People here, when they're trying to sell property, will bury St. Anthony halfway upside down in the yard to sell homes. I, I have a, a shop, the Island of Salvation Botanic, and I cannot keep statues of St. Anthony in, in St. Joseph, I'm sorry, uh, St. Joseph in stock because people are always trying to sell their properties. Um, so I think, I think the influence went both ways. Um, but certainly Catholic saints were recognized as, as being symbolic, let's say of, of spirits that were brought over from Africa on the backs of enslaved people. So, uh, St. Patrick is shown driving snakes out of Ireland and became associated with Dambalawedo, who is a serpent. <laughs> and um, so it's not exactly that St. Patrick is being honored, but the recognition is of Dambala, who is somehow encoded within that image. Right. It's almost like the reverse avatar that the, the, mm-hmm. it, it, the, the, the avatar has been usurped by the, the actual underlying faith. But I, I just think that's really cool. I don't know that that hasn't been done anywhere else, but it's not been so obvious to me before, which is interesting. You spent a lot of time talking about how Kabbalah influenced you and how Kabbalah and yoga and the chakras and, and these things are, are incorporated into voodoo. And I don't know that I ever heard that before, or maybe I just wasn't listening, which is entirely possible, or hearing what was being told to me. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, first of all, where did you study Kabbalah? Because it's not, you know, it's not that easy to do, uh, at least not properly. We all know about sort of like, you know, Badanda said she studied Kabbalah, Kabbalah, but it was, you know, sort of like 
you know, the main street version of, of Kabbalah, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and yoga and the chakras and, you know, you could take them in order or mix them together because you're the expert in this. So if you could sort of put those things together and, and mm-hmm. describe, I guess, the, the precepts of both and how they uh, fit into voodoo or why anyone should be surprised if they do. So I'm just reading a book right now um, that has this full of information that I was unaware of that in, in Africa, there is a, a confluence, a synchronization with um, Hindu deities from chromolithograph images. You know, the prints of the Hindu deities mm-hmm. are used throughout altars and, and um, are honored as being forms of Mamiwata. <laughs> um, and the same kind of, of phenomenon that went on with the Catholic chromolithographs in Haiti. I just found that absolutely fascinating. When I was in Haiti, I would see um, little statues of Ganesh, for instance, the the elephant deity who's about opportunities and opening doors and pathways. And he would be on an altar next to uh, an image of Legba, who is the gatekeeper and the opener of the way and, and the opener of opportunities in Vodou. And so clearly the creator of that altar recognized the similarity of frequency, if you will, or power principle um, within those two different pantheons. Um, You might see Erzali Freda, the spirit of love and beauty in the dream of perfection on an altar with an image of Lakshmi, who is, you know, abundance and and you know one of the one of the Hindu goddesses who's all about luxury and, and beauty and all of that and sweetness. Yeah. So be a little but, bit like Aphrodite. Yeah. So there is a kind of natural Kabbalah. So much of Kabbalah has to do with a kind of index file of all all the possibilities of of the universe and and. It's described as being a way to catalog the way in which God dreams, (laughs) the divine dreams us into being. And so there's a a natural aspect to that that I see enacted in Vodou. Um, There's something so absolutely natural about Vodou practice all the time. And so that is... um, a way in which we as humans can recognize maybe the meaning behind a symbol. Uh, it's one thing to learn a, a catechism, catechism or a, um, a doctrine about Legba. It's another thing to understand it deeply enough and intimately enough in your blood and bones that you recognize that that's Legba. That's the same principle in, in Ganesh. Um, there's the influence of numbers, which is really important in Kabbalah. And because the Hebrew alphabet, each letter is a number, uh, has a numerical value. And so there's formulas that you can create and recognize in the world. And you can recognize similarities between seemingly very different words, um, different ideas. And you can find the, the core essence of that. 
Um, for me, Kabbalah is like Vodou, a living practice. It's a, it's a way of uh, decoding um, what is in highly symbolic forms in our everyday mundane lives in the world around us and finding out the essential meaning of it. And so that's how I apply that to a little bit of synchronicity here because I started reading a book of a future guest and I really don't usually do that. I usually finish the book of the guest and I don't want to clutter things in my head, you know, that I may conflate, but I think that maybe there was something to it because this book, just by coincidence, was by a, a Kabbalistic rabbi who's also a prison chaplain, uh, which is going to be an interesting story into, in, unto itself. Uh, but it's a, it, the book is, is biblical fiction. Uh, you know, he says it's right on the back. It's biblical fiction. But, I, you know, I think he's trying to take some concepts. Why am I telling you and the audience this? Is because they spend some time with, you know, characters basically having, uh, distilling, distilling uh, large concepts into, he's got a great economy of language, which obviously I don't, but basically that the, the, the numbers equal math and math turns into the music of the universe, which is when you were telling me your description of how you saw the earth sort of as, you know, almost like a watery blurry sort of sphere of energy mm-hmm. that, you know, that that's vibrational, that's resonance. That's, that's the music. And that, that's sort of what, as soon as you said it, I'm like, Oh my God, I just read this this morning. And I, you know, I've seen it in other places too, of course, but, uh, probably not as well as this one gentleman uh, put it. And I'm wondering if, if that is sort of what you were saying as well. Absolutely. And and there's also a, a history of the presence of Kabbalah in Vodou, that there were Masons practicing both in Haiti. I don't know if you can hear this snoring, but that's my dog in the background. Um, she's very interested in this subject. Um, there. There were the presence of Masons in both um, Saint-Domingue, Haiti, and the Louisiana colony, and they brought with them various forms of mysticism, as, uh, including Kabbalism, which is the, the Jewish mysticism. Um, and there's also a history of, of very negative PR uh, for both traditions, that um, they... Spanish Inquisition used the very same horrific images that were used against the Jews and applied them to Afro-Caribbeans. And, you know, so they're satanic, they, they are against God, they sacrifice babies and eat them, they have depraved orgies, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a sense um, in Haitian Vodou... Do you believe that? It still works. They're powerful images. They're hard to get out of your head once somebody's planted them. I mean, um, the education is like it's it's bad guy playbook number one is to say the yeah. other side of satanic eating babies. Where, yeah, where are the babies? At any rate, there's a there's a recognition of uh, maybe some kind of fraternal experience here that. Um, both both uh, traditions have have experienced this vilification, and so there is some recognition of one another. And the and the word Kabbalah, I've heard people saying in in 
Haiti and, and Haitian priests and priestesses refer to Kabbalah and they know what they're talking about. So this isn't just a creation of my own. Oh, I don't doubt it for a second. It, it, it was interesting because I'm glad you mentioned the Masons because you mentioned the Templars, which later resurfaced, uh, you know, as the Masons <laughs> and put that in there. I had never put the two together, but now it makes perfect sense. And the Gnostics, and I, I you know, the Gnostics means a lot of things, but it also means one thing. And it, it, the whole thing is very confusing. And the, and the funny thing is one of the people who set me down this course um, is, a, is a Gnostic priest. I never... Uh, uh, actually had the conversation with him as to what exactly is Gnosticism. Of course, there's, I, I since learned there's, you know, there's not one thing there either. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know how much, if, if the the voodoo would be more like the Asen version or the Manakian or the, the Sethian or, or, you know, you, it, you know, it's not, it's not even clear, but uh, uh well, to further complicate things, there's no written canon for Vodou, and there's no central church, so everything was passed by word of mouth, and, and one teacher would lead uh, their own particular community, and so everybody has a sort of different take, and even fairly different practices. There's a there's an order to how a ceremony is conducted, but within that order, there is a lot of leeway for interpretation and improvisation and, and spontaneous creativity. One size doesn't fit all. Uh, yeah. You actually defined voodoo um, in any spelling. You said it means those who serve the spirits, which I, I thought was a very elegant you know, I've never heard that either. No, you know, it's just it's just a term that people loosely apply. And and there's been luckily enough on the show, we we've had other folks dispel some of the negative connotations that, that come with it. And that doesn't mean you don't have to either. But if, <laughs> if you don't want to, you don't have to, or at least the, the most necessary uh, ones. But uh, I, I think it is sort of necessary to write out a box. You know, sort of address the associations and you start with in your chapter what is voodoo with black magic sorcery and devil worship the stuff the movies are made of and i think it would be terribly unfair to have a you know a monbo a high priestess not be able to say you know address that yeah so part of me is very reluctant to apologize for things that Vodou isn't, and to um, even address them at all because it's so absurd. But, uh, you know, paramount is that it's a satanic evil practice, and there's nothing satanic or evil about it. It's a life-affirming religion and, and philosophy and way of life. It's a beautiful song and dance. Um, it's a way of reaching into the soul of life and extracting the meaning in spite of whatever might be going on on the surface level. When I think about Vodou's early ancestors who were taken from their homes in Africa and from their families and communities, and everything was just taken from them, their dignity and, and their lives were very much shortened and they suffered after a little bit, you don't know where you're from. I mean, yeah, and and their ancestors were taken from them, and Vodou emerged as this extraordinarily resilient, positive, life-affirming healing practice that 
that reestablished connection to ancestors, reestablished a connection to an invisible world that's full of life and power and meaning, and had the miraculous effect of taking people out of the catastrophic circumstances that they found themselves in and took them from slavery to freedom and disempowerment to empowerment, uh, made ordinary people the vessels for extraordinary spirits. Uh, It's phenomenal. And I believe that in our time, even if we're not enslaved as, as chattel slaves, uh, doing manual labor and being whipped to death and, and worked to death, we still have some concept of what slavery is like. And we might be enslaved to a, a bad relationship or enslaved to our habits and, and um, self-destructive things that we do to ourselves. And, and you know, the list goes on and on. And when we think about how difficult it is to take off the shackles that we've put on ourselves, I am just amazed and, and deeply impressed by these people who held on to their beliefs and their sense of self and their sense of um, value in the world and developed this technology for reaching beyond the visible surface of things into the core of, of what matters to them and were able to bring through this um, invisible power. Of course, that was terrifying to the slave owners and, and threatening to uh, their intentions. And so this effort was made to vilify Vodou and to say that it was evil when in fact, of course, it was the slave trade that was evil. You don't do that to people. <laughs> right. Of course. Uh, we say, of course, now. I mean, you know, it's happening in some parts of the world right now. Um, mm-hmm. Not as obviously, you know, not to the extent, of, clearly. Um, at least I hope not. Um, you know, I, I think that we never actually got to the original. Like, like, how unusual is it for someone of your background to become a priestess in, in Haitian voodoo? It's becoming less unusual. Um, but at the time it was pretty unusual. <laughs> um, I knew of a couple of people who had done that. Um, what was amazing to me was how readily accepted I was by the community in Haiti and how welcoming and open they were to me. Um, although it took many, many years to really gain trust and, and become part of the family and have people express that to me. Um, it was a very welcome transformation that happened, but it, it took a lot of work. And I think that the Haitian people are very used to being effed over, and yeah. have people promise them the world and, and just be taken, you know, whatever few resources are left there from them. So right. it was a real honor. Um, those doors opened up for me. I didn't ever question them. But looking back on it, you know, it just felt completely natural, just putting one foot in front of the other as something became available. I just went through that door. Looking back on it now, it, it is pretty unusual um, and 
quite a blessing in my life. It's one thing I that, that was made clear to me in your book. Again, I'm not sure if it's something that I missed in prior conversations with other folks or, or whatnot, and that's probably the most likely suspect. But voodoo is really not uh, pagan. There is there is a one god above the others. Uh, it's just that the you can't really put a name or face on it. Well, that sounds familiar. That that that's nothing new, um, and that the 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 loas, the spirits, they're not exactly the same as angels or demons. They're, it seems like they're more akin to the jinn or, you know, almost fey folk or luminaries or guides that, that I hear, you know, people in other philosophies talk about that, that, that they're above, they're, they're not above, they're different than human. They're, they're immortal, but they're, but they're not exactly gods in their own rights. Uh, can you sort of explain that a little bit? So they're often referred to as ange angels. Um, they are seen as similar to Catholic saints, except that they also, they're not only um, beings in themselves, they were once human beings um, okay. who have died and, and gone through the initiation of death and see the world from a different perspective, a heightened perspective perhaps. But they're also... Um, archetypal principles, as well as forces of nature. So you might see an incredibly powerful uh, luminous tree, and that might be a tree of Grimbois, the great, the great forest, uh, the spirit of the great forest. Or Erzuli Freida is love and beauty, and she's also fresh water in the world. Or Ogu is is um, the warrior spirit and leader of men and also iron in the world and fire. Um, so they're, they're each of them a particular frequency of the life force of God, of bon Dieu, good God, um, or grand met, the grand master. Um, and they express to us in the world around us Unlike God, who is extremely distant and abstract, they relate to us because they were once human. And so we can relate to them as well. We experience them as, as family or friends, um, but characters that we can recognize and relate to, and we develop relationships with them. And they're in the water that we bathe in, in the ground that we walk upon, and they are ancestors that came before us and the, the natural world that supports us and the, um, the life force that, in, that encourages and inspires us forward. Yeah, I've, I've read that ancestor worship is the first worship, but I'm, I'm not sure if it is or, you know, sort of worship of the heavenly bodies are or if they came together. It doesn't really matter. It was so long ago, but uh, whenever, you know, and, and the first in one place doesn't mean it was the first in another place. It's not like it's not like the first 12 people were sitting in, you know, one town and saying, we're it. It's not like, you know, the, the Atlantis <laughs> myth uh, is just an allegory, probably anyway. Um, but that. The good news here is you you don't have a job anymore. You don't have to remind me of this because Enoch is probably the most famous, uh, you know, of the first who was a man 
who ascended to not godhood, but but to something close to angelic status. So everyone's saying that, you know, well, Hercules was first, or Gilgamesh was first, or Jesus. Well, they 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 reached full apotheosis. They as they ascended to godhood. I think Muhammad probably as well, though I, I I know so little about Islam. That's such a hole in my knowledge base that I'm working on. But that brings us to the Enochian Tarot. Now it makes sense why you'd be doing Enochian Tarot. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. So let's, let's talk about that for a bit. So when I was in the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis, I was truly fascinated by Enochian magic, and I found it um, what, is, what, what is Enochian magic? I'm sorry. <laughs> so Enochian is the language that the angels use to speak to Enoch in the, in the Bible. And there was an Elizabethan um, astronomer for Queen Elizabeth who practiced uh, Enochian magic and received all sorts of documents and, and sigils and, and all through scrying. Um, and so Dee and Kelly have these, have these um, their notebooks, I guess you could say, um, that have come down to us in time. And angels would point out Enochian letters in the alphabet and, and explain things and set up sigils and, and glyphs for these two practitioners of magic. And um, like most magical systems, there's, there's applications that seem pretty negative, like you could supposedly do this 14-day ritual and destroy the world with it, you know, hurry up the destruction of the world. Um, but there are other astral visions that you can go on and, and explore the 30 ethers of the universe and in increasingly rarefied circles around around the earth and uh, just fascinating. And I'm a, I'm a visual artist, so I really love the, the visuals associated and, and what these angels and archangels and sub-archangels with you know, sub-quadrant mm-hmm. angels would show you about um, their little their little corner of the universe, and, and I heard that Gerald Schuler, who wrote a book on Enochian magic, was doing a tarot deck, and they were going to use computer generated almost stick figures for the for the tarot cards, and I somehow made a pitch saying, "Why well, have a computer do this? This is long before AI." Um, when you've got an artist who actually does Enochian magic and has seen these things um, up close and in person, and I somehow talked them into it. So I spent, um, uh, uh, I think it was just a year, I was pumping out these (laughs) images for the Enochian tarot deck. I think I was in a a heightened trance state for the entire time, and I was a bartender at the time, so I was going to work with my head full of angels and archangels and sub-quadrant angels and <laughs> so forth and so on. Um, it is was this just still available for heady time. Pardon? Is this still available for sale, purchase? I think it's out of print, and it has been for a long time, but you can still get copies um, on eBay and, and so okay. forth. I don't have to look. Unfortunately, difficulty is is something you know I don't like, but uh, I'll, I'll try mm-hmm. to look. I guess uh-huh. I'll do a Google search for Enochian Tarot and, and your name, and it'll show up. 
It should, or Gerald Schuler. Gerald Schuler, okay. All right, so now I saw Le Marasa or the Sacred Twins. Well, that is something that repeats pretty much everywhere, including in my, you know, somewhat humble opinion, Adam and Eve. Um, mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the, the Sacred Twins. So the twins, I mean, it also carries into Kabbalah, the idea of the two supernals from which everything else evolves, you know, from the from the union of opposites comes everything. And um, in Vodou, children who are born twins have special powers or seem to have special powers, and the child born after a set of twins has a special powers. Uh, the twins are seen as the first children of God, the Marasa. So they're the first dead and they're the first ancestors. They're honored at the beginning of a ceremony right after Legba is called upon to open the spirit doors. The Marasa are, are honored. And again, the idea of opposites that are not in opposition but which reveal and interpenetrate one another and, and express through one another and lead to the third principle and everything after that. Um, so there are two bodies who are sharing one soul and express within their own metaphor <clears throat> the idea that there is an invisible world that surrounds and buoys the visible world and that these two worlds interact and influence one another, and that the the visible world influences the invisible world in ways that are visible, and likewise the invisible world influences the visible world in ways that are invisible and might seem supernatural to an observer, but to a Voda practitioner completely natural, hypernatural. You already addressed the loa and told us about that, um, but there's something that anything with a number strikes out at me. And and you noted that there were seventeen nanshon. Not, I'm sure I'm pronouncing nashon. Nashon. Um, what is the nashon, and is there any particular significance to seventeen, or that's just the way it is? There's many different um, takes on how many nations there are. These are the the African nations that were brought through the slave trade to Sendeming and developed in different percentages in different parts of the island for different kinds of work. Um, so these nations are actually recognizable, you know, Ibo, Rada, Arada, um, Congo, uh, Nago. These are nations that you would actually have found in Africa. Yeah, yeah. And some people say 17, some say 41, some say 21. You know, it just depends. They're they're, um, generally categorized as either Rada or Petro, the Rada being the um, more gentle, um, more formal, more religious, um, older African uh, spirits and, and rites. And the Petro are seen as more, um, they're speedier, they're faster, they're hotter, they're more magical in nature, more informal in nature, and maybe more turbulent than some of the Rada ones. And it would be a mistake to see those as either 
good or bad. Um, they just are what they are. And one of the things that I think is so healthy about Vodou and the Vodou worldview is that rather than trying to route out any any aspects of our psyche that, that might be turbulent or intense, the idea is you just bring them into balance, that all of it is powerful and all of it is divine. All of it is an expression of God's life force. Um, but you just want to bring it into balance within yourself. So there was sort of that, you know, all of the like initiate, I, if I am understanding the book correctly, O U N S I is sort of like the initiate. I don't know how to pronounce N-C. it. Yeah. N-C. yeah. And then you, you advance to a level of Ongan. You go to the level of, um, let's see, I'm sorry, of, Ungan or Mambo Serpuen, which means on the point of, which is uh, kind of an apprentice uh, priest or priestess. And ultimately you get to the level of Ungan or Mambo Asabwe, which is the highest level of initiation in full priesthood. I want to throw something out there real quickly, just so, because I don't want to get into too much other guests to talk about, but, you know, a lot of people think possession is something horrible. And of course we see that in, you know, lots of horror movies and stuff like that. But possession in voodoo isn't, you're not being possessed by something evil. It's, it's, it's sort of almost like the ecstasy of, of communing with, with something divine. It's, it's, and that's why there's a lot of physicality in the dance and, and the moves. Uh, which mm-hmm. I think is probably sort of the tie into yoga and the and the, the, the shock. For me, it is, and yeah. and that I don't sacrifice animals. I use life force of prana and breathing and, and all of that to allow possession to happen. It's also something that the drummers, which they have uh, incredibly complex drum patterns, and and there might be three or five drummers all drumming at a different time than one another. And it's all being held together with this bell. And they do what's called casse, which is a break against the dominant rhythm that allows possession trance to happen. And of course, I don't experience possession trance as a a routing out of myself or a, um, a shortening of myself. Rather, it's a, it's a raising yourself into a, into a higher presence into a, a greater being and it it's experienced as it's certainly strange and challenging but it is experienced as a blessing your book has excellent uh charts or illustrations one showing the different chakras and and the, and the uh sort of i guess the associated parts that are tied to voodoo with them and also the kabbalistic tree of life and mm-hmm. i don't know for whatever reason though those just struck me um I don't know if, if it's even possible to sort of go over the Kabbalistic tree of life uh, in, in, in brief. <laughs> three minutes or less. Um, right. You know, it's a glyph that represents how um, life issues out of nothingness, out of the negative veils of being, and how light comes through um, from that. And each of the different spheres has... Um, a meaning and a, and a realm of experience that, that is represented within that sphere. It's also a way of organizing tarot and um, the, the court cards are, are each of the, or the, the, um, the primary cards are each within a 
pathway that connects the spheres and so forth and the and the elemental cards fit in the spheres so it's a way of finding a universal order behind tarot cards and behind experience for those listeners who have been longtime listeners who just or just stumbled upon the show on chinese magic uh, this book is a little bit similar to Jason Reed's book on that, and that it actually gives you uh, sort of direction step by step on how to do some of the chants, or, or at least how you do them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so obviously I don't want to go through all of them. That's by the book, so that you can do that. But one, mm-hmm. what it resonated with me, and I'm going to pronounce it. I think it's Couché, and it, yeah. it seemed almost like vision quests, walk about Odin hanging from the tree, Jesus in the desert. I mean, it, it, you know, it sort of seemed a little bit like that. And, you know, I'm sure I'm oversimplifying things. Can you talk a little bit about it and actually pronounce yeah. it correctly? Couché means to put to sleep. Okay. And it refers to uh, a week-long initiation process that's pretty intense. And um, some of that intensity comes from being isolated from the general contemporary world and being in an isolated chamber. Um, I can tell you only a few things about it, having taken oaths before spirit, not to spill the beans, so to say. Um, But you spend that week on your left side, dreaming or visioning or doing whatever you do for a week on your left side and punctuated by some pretty intense rituals that occur. And for me, the experience was one of stripping away everything that I used to identify myself um, emotionally, psychologically, socially, spiritually, um, even physically. And I went through a dark night of the soul while I was there when I was saying to myself, what are you doing here? You're the shabbiest excuse for an initiate ever. Who do you think you are? And what do you think you're doing? And and I was just ripping myself to shreds. And Edgar, my papa, came in the room, or so I thought. I wasn't sure if I was dreaming or having a vision or imagining or what was going on, um, or if he was actually really there. And we talked for hours, which was pretty strange because he spoke only Haitian Creole. And at the time, I spoke French and English, but no Creole. And we understood each other perfectly. At the end of that conversation, I was able to say, okay, this is me. This is what I've got. These are my strengths and my weaknesses. And do with me what you can. Let me be of use. Let me serve. And that allowed me to take up my power and accept myself and and put whatever skills and weaknesses I have to work. And the night after the initiation was over, Edgar showed up at my friend's house. And I told him that I'd had this experience and asked him if he was actually there. Did I imagine it? And he said, oh, I was there all right. And he repeated the conversation that we had and he was speaking Creole and I was speaking French and English and we understood each other perfectly. And it was very weird. That is very weird. Um, Is on the left side, is that a metaphor or is that literal? You're literally sleeping on your left side. 
And how do you stay? How do you like, are you in some I mean, structure where <laughs> you would wake up and be on your back or whatever and, and turn over. Okay. So uh, it's nothing like you're in like a, like a box or something. Where no, they, no. That's fine. All right. I was just curious. I guess like, you know, I mean, most people are sort of active sleepers. Okay. So talking about not spilling the beans, you have a section here on secret societies. So, I mean, we mm-hmm. all want to hear about secret societies. So <laughs> what, what can you spill the beans on secret societies and voodoo? Yeah, so there's fairly well known publicly that there are secret societies in Haiti. Um, the Masons would be an example of secret societies elsewhere. And um, in Haiti, there's not always, um, you know, a structured police force. There's not always um, a, a government that you can rely upon to mete out justice. So these secret societies, in addition to claiming any way that they have powers of shape-shifting, that they can become animal forms, that they do magic stuff, voltigeurs that, that bounce around in balls of light and travel phys- you know, f- through physical space and, and balls of light. But they also are a kind of community regulating um, vehicle. So if somebody has done terrible things, then these secret societies can convene and and form a a kind of tribunal to determine whether the person is guilty or not and and what should be their punishment. Um, A lot of these secret societies work with powders and potions that that allow them to actually zombify a person and, and the whole you know, exploited, sensationalized zombie image. Um, I never actually met a zombie in Haiti, but um, some of these secret societies can supposedly administer these powders and potions that slow a person's um, metabolism down to the extent that they will seem dead. And they actually bury them and, and put them underground for a period of time. And when they revitalize them, there might be some brain damage but there's also a great deal of trauma and um, the person's punishment is to be a, a zombie for life, which in a, in a culture that was founded upon slavery, that's a pretty horrific fate yeah. <laughs> to be uh, trapped in a body with no soul laboring for somebody else. Absolutely. Oh, somebody woke up. Um, uh-huh. What are the, what are the holiest or most special times in voodoo, I mean, that New Orleans is famous for carnival, Mardi Gras, you know, jazz fest, mm-hmm. I suppose, which is probably, you know, completely secular, uh, you know, always you know, Halloween and, you know, All Saints, you know, or Day of the Dead afterwards. Uh, I mean, which are actually part of voodoo or which are part where, you know, people just get together to have fun or, you know, whatever. You know, uh, well, my the- house is pretty unique in that we do ceremony every week, which would not happen pretty much in Haiti. Um, but there are certain dates on the calendar that are extremely important in New Orleans. St. John's Eve on June 23rd is, is a particularly significant magical time at midsummer. And we do head washings, they're called, which are kind of voodoo baptism on Bayou St. John. And, and it's open to the public and, um, you know, hundreds of people come to participate in that very beautiful ceremony. Uh, you mentioned Halloween and the Day of the Dead. November 1st is the beginning of Fet Gede, the 
festival, a party for Gede, who are the spirits of death and sex and regeneration. And we do a major, major event at um, our New Orleans Healing Center uh, in the lobby for Fit Gede. And again, hundreds of people come out for it. And um, the for our house, the the third Saturday in July, we do a hurricane turning ceremony because New Orleans is so threatened by hurricanes. Um, Juneteenth is a very important date in, in American Vodou because it's the date of liberation of uh, and end of slavery. Um, we do Christmas Eve. There are bonfires in, in Lutcher, Louisiana that we go to, and bonfires and flaming baths are, are practiced on Christmas Eve, and we serve all the petrol, all the fiery magical spirits and make magical stuff and do these flaming baths. It's a great deal of fun. And, and Easter today, um, all, the, all the Radha spirits, all the gentle uh, formal spirits, have been sleeping through Lent. And so at the end of Lent, we feed them all and wake them up and celebrate them. That's great. I think in the past, people have told me that the one of the most famous images of listen, people of a certain age from the United States, those ugly Americans, our first introduction to voodoo, you know, besides being Scooby-Doo, was probably, was probably the James Bond movie, Live and Let Die. Oh, God. Uh, right. So... And we had the and we had Papa and was Papa Legba the, the with the top hat and the, the skeleton is that you know correct? they got their they got their images a little crossed Legba right. got crossed up with Getty so okay. that's a terrible movie and and looking at it more recently it's an incredibly racist movie um, it's really kind of appalling and the disrespect to Vodou is is extreme and I think about how you know, Vodou was carried on the backs of people who were enslaved and, and are we still going to really exploit these people and make a buck off of them, off of their suffering and, and let them line our pockets. It's, it's truly appalling. Um, and I hope that anybody who has seen that movie erases that from their minds and approaches Vodou from a fresh perspective. Um, and for those who haven't seen it, maybe don't don't watch that movie. <laughs> don't give it the time of day. Seventies movie, so it's probably pretty easy to avoid. Um, yeah. What is the difference between uh, Gede and Legba? I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing either correctly. Legba is an old man. He's a mason, and he's dressed in masonic clothing. He is quite benign. He's the opener of doors and pathways. He accompanies human beings um, pretty closely in our walk of life. So he is a little battered and beat up. He's lame. He -hmm. walks with a cane or a crutch. Um, He's very relatable uh, to us. He's like our our Papa Legba. He's sort of like Odin when he's nice. When he's wandering, yeah, up, when he's not being <laughs> awful, when Odin's being nice, it sounds like Odin. And Legba is associated with the sun. And Gede are all the spirits of the dead. And they're the, the rulers of the family of the dead. They are, some of them are considered to be young and virile. Others are corpse-like themselves. Um, there is Baron's uh, Lacroix 
the Baron of the Crossroads and Baron Kalfu, uh, Baron Samdi, the, the Baron of Saturday Night. But Kalfu is seen as the bottom of the crossroads, while Legba is the top of the crossroads. Mm. Legba is an old, lame man. Kalfu is a virile, young, handsome black man. And he is the moon. He's the nighttime. Legba is the sun in the daytime. But they both have something to do with that crossroads between life and death. Is there any crossbar? Is there anyone at the other two cardinal points? Uh, there's life itself. There's our physical world. The you know the earth, the universe that we walk in is the horizontal arm. The vertical arm of the crossroads is the invisible. And where the two intersect is where magic can happen. And you would know that the the double V is a symbol of voodoo, and that, in fact, is crossroads. And I guess if also you want to sort of shove them a little bit together, it's sort of the Star of David. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, of course, anybody who read the Da Vinci Code, you know all about what, what you offered <laughs> on that as well. All right. Now, going back to ugly Americans of a lowbrow sort, like me, because I'm talking directly about me, maybe one of your first introdu- introductions into voodoo was the professional wrestler named Papa Shango, who later on went by other names. Now now you understand why you're seeing all these strange things behind me, because, yeah, this is an audio podcast, but behind me are some luchador masks and a, and a stuffed doll that looks like it might be a voodoo doll, but it's not. It's a doll of Lily, who belonged, whose Alexa Bliss is sort of an evil avatar. Uh, it's all pro wrestling. So there was a wrestler named Papa Shango, and, you know, of course, he was casting spells on people and things like that. So who is the real Shango and why is he nothing like the bad guy professional wrestler, Papa Shango? <laughs> I don't know that he's nothing like him. Okay. Uh, Shango in- is actually a, an Orisha. And just to be clear, I'm a mambo of Haitian voodoo, which deals with Loa, not Orisha. So anything I say about the Orisha is suspect and I'm certainly not an authority. But Shango is uh, the spirit of... Uh, thunder. He's a drummer. He's a dancer. He's masculine beauty. He was a king. And so uh, a very good um, leader, including leader of ourselves, you know, the capacity to make good decisions and to take a path and follow through it with confidence. Um, and he, he likes fire. He likes to play with fire. Um, but he is very masculine and, and very beautiful and powerful. <clears throat> so I guess the wrestler has something to do with some of that. Yeah, but probably also was a bit of the live and let die confusion because the mm-hmm. symbology was much like, um, uh, not like Babel, but Gede, I think you said. Gede. Mm-hmm. More like that, but top hat, you know, face paint. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you know. It was a fun little character, short-lived, uh, <laughs> probably for the best. Uh, anyway, um, I, I noticed that there were, I don't want to say different ranks, but there, there seemed to be Unjans and Lapas, and and there was another name, Munjan, and they, they seemed to be associated with different skills or rights. Or, uh, can you embellish on that a little bit? I think it's more levels of knowledge that Anunsi is an initiate, um, and Sikanzo is an initiate who's gone through a kind of trial by fire and is seen as someone who has made the decision to marry themselves to a life of the spirit and to serve. 
um, but they're certainly not expected to know a tremendous amount about ceremonies and, and how to carry them out, or even to have um, deep knowledge of medicinal things, uh, magical things, uh, how to cross the, the no man's land into spirit possession. Um, they're not necessarily expected to be able to help guide people, other people, and be a resource for other people. They're there to serve. And the Serpuen, the on the point of, um, are definitely apprentices. Um, they have a great deal more knowledge, but are still learning and practicing. And at the level of Ungan, or Mambo, or Sagwe, I would say you're always and for the rest of your life learning that you don't ever get to the end of everything there is to know, which I find very refreshing. But you have a good deal of knowledge that you're able to impart to a community. I think the the measure of a Mambo or Ungan is whether people find that person to be effective and helpful and a good uh, a good guide in the paths of life. I didn't ask this earlier, but how is it that you were able to find a way to study Kabbalah and masonry? Uh, you know, it sounds like you studied Kabbalah before you you found voodoo. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like something you can just say, I want to study Kabbalah. And it's, I mean, then there wasn't an internet then where you could just Google it and maybe find. So how did that happen, especially in Maine? <laughs> well, I wasn't always in Maine. I, um, I ended up in Connecticut and then New York City and traveled. I was quite a vagabond for a while, yeah. but it's in my family. Um, you know, I had a, an uncle who was a Kabbalist. I have a cousin who's a teacher of Kabbalah. And there are books and you can, you can work with them. It, it is like so many things. It's a practice and it's not something that I would say at any point that I'm a, a master Kabbalist or an authority on Kabbalah. I just practice it. I work with it and find it um, enhancing of my life. You know, it, it deepens my experience of my life. Right. What about the Freemasonry? Well, my involvement with the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis, uh, they make a claim that they were um, a development of the Knights Templar who went underground into masonry and that they contain the the knowledge and the magic of, of masonry. So that's my inroad there. I'm not a an actual card carrying mason. Right. Yeah. I, it's, yeah. I can't tell you how many people I run into who tell me that they're, you know, a Freemason of such and such level, but they can't tell you anything because they're sworn to, which seems yeah. to be a very a very convenient the way people <laughs> pretend that they're something that they're not, um, uh-huh. especially when they're telling you that on the internet. But uh, anyway, yeah, I, I, right. Right. Um, I know that you have ceremonies kind of uh, coming up rather shortly uh, today, so I want to be respectful mm-hmm. of your time. So my last question is going to be very open ended, which is, what didn't I ask you that I should have, or what did you feel important to tell me about that that I didn't give you a chance to? There's a whole world of information. I've literally been studying Voodoo for decades now and practicing for decades. And I am nowhere near um, 
having a sense that I know much of anything. And it is one of those things that the more I learn, the more there is to learn. And well, that was Plato's definition of wisdom. Okay. Well, that makes me very wise indeed. Um, But I encourage people to, um, you know, if you're traveling in New Orleans and you're there on a Saturday night, which is when we usually do our ceremonies, I encourage people to attend, um, just sort of take the plunge because I could sit here explaining voodoo for the rest of my life and not give you a a good sense of what it is. Uh, It's experiential and the drumming is amazing and the, Creole songs, the sacred songs of Odoo are amazing. Um, the dancing is amazing. And the experience is, is a profound one that um, not only changes your any erroneous opinions that you may have picked up about Vodou, but it changes your perspective on your own experience, your own life in a, in a very healthy, um, empowering way. So I encourage people to come in and experience the real thing or go to Haiti if you can and, and experience it there. Just don't expect most people, most practitioners to simply open their doors and be happy to see you. It's, they're, they're cautious. Right. Makes sense. Um, okay. I, so how would people like, you know, obviously there's a book, there's other things. How, how can people follow, support you? How can they find their way to the ceremonies? Where's your shop located? My shop is the Island of Salvation Botanica, and we're all over social media, and we have a website, so people can find us through any of those means. Um, We're in the New Orleans Healing Center, which is a project that my husband and I put together with the help of lots of people, and it's on St. Claude Avenue in New Orleans, Louisiana. And um, you can certainly find the shop at www.islandofsalvationbotanica.com. Okay, wonderful. And the book is Voodoo Visions. Uh, I think I got it off of Amazon, so that you know that that's probably you can get it from Amazon. But yeah. probably some bookstores too, as well. Mm-hmm. And there's the New Orleans Voodoo Tarot, which is a way to get some hands-on experience with the Loa. Is that an actual deck? Yeah. Maybe that'll be my plan B if I can't find the Enochian one. Destiny, inner traditions. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing time, especially on Easter today. I know it's a big deal for you. I appreciate that. And folks, uh, please check out her stuff and buy the book. If you have any interest, if you go down, if you're in New Orleans, say hello. And I'd ask that you uh, give us a rating, a review, five stars. If you can write a review, that's wonderful. But more importantly than anything else, well, two things co-equally. One, subscribe so that you can download and never miss any episodes of both Garden of Doom and Garden Views. Um, And refer friends because this is sort of a genre-defined show, and I'm not really sure that the name of the show (laughs) accurately depicts (laughs) all of its content. So anyway, with that, thank you very much. Thank you again, Sally Ann Glassman, for reaching your story with us and your knowledge. Wonderful. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. We'll hear you next week in the Garden of Doom.